Thank you. Why we welcome you uh, to Bethel Lutheran and to this LBI Bible study with Dr. Weersma. Um, we <laughs> we uh, had a wonderful discussion last night, uh, a completely new way uh, exploring, in fact, utilizing graphics from uh, back at the time of Luther uh, to display the whole concept of the Bible of law and gospel. And it was very, very good. And um, uh, we will continue. Uh, for those of you who uh, don't have uh, uh, one of our little flyers, why the topics for the three sessions today are uh, listed in there, and they're on the registration table. The uh, restrooms are off to the left when you go out here. There will be uh, a luncheon this noon, uh, which is uh, um, at voluntary-type contribution. Bethel has been very, very good in, in uh, arranging for all the details associated with this, this uh, meeting, with all of the conflicts uh, in their schedules that they've had. Uh, Chuck Kaufman, for example, who is the coordinator, he uh, uh, had to go to, down to Los Angeles, and Pastor Paps uh, at the last was invited to speak uh, at the, uh, I'm going to say coronation, but at the uh, dedication effect of the former associate pastor from here who's been called down there. So he had to give the message. So we only saw him yesterday afternoon. So the, Bethel has really done a great job in uh, handling this whole thing. I gave you a number of comments last night that I won't repeat, but regarding our, our LBI's concerns over, over uh, the Bible study and Bible education of our youth uh, in the churches. And we're setting up a whole new program based on uh, bringing Scripture to them through the Internet. And we're looking for uh, churches that are willing to uh, uh, emphasize this and that have a, a, a youth group. And we're hoping that Bethel might be one of them. Uh, so with those, those few comments, I'd like to uh, turn now to the session for this morning. Our... our um, uh, but before we begin, why don't we start with prayer? Heavenly Father, what a privilege it is to come to you and to study your word, the very foundation for our lives. And we certainly appreciate the fact that Dr. Wiersma has come all the way from Minnesota out here to share his thoughts and to guide us in studying the whole term of law and the gospel and what your scriptures 
should mean to us and how we should read them. Lord, we just thank you for that. We ask you to bless this time that we have together uh, to, to bring uh, the, uh, new thoughts into our mind and refresh all the old ones that we have carried with us for so many years. For your scriptures are the foundation of our lives. Thank you, Lord. Bless this day. In Jesus' name, amen. So, uh, I gave you quite a long discussion about uh, Hans last night, and I, and I know he is telling me, don't repeat it. I can just hear the message coming. <laughs> and so, I won't, I won't do that. I'll just introduce you here to Dr. Hans Wiersma uh, uh, from Augsburg College. God bless. Thank you, Jim. I appreciate it. All right. Oh, thanks. <clears throat> All right, ready to go? <laughs> this is going to be a, a little bit of a long day, but I think it's going to be um, a good time. And I mean that uh, in a sort of humorous, light fashion, but also in a serious fashion as well. <clears throat> I think we're going to get to uh, some media issues as concerns um, some of the media issues facing the ELCA right now, and that is um, scriptural interpretation, the authority to interpret scripture, the authority of congregations versus the authority of um, the, the church-wide body and so forth. So we'll, we'll have a good time discussing those very serious subjects as well. Uh, everyone get enough sleep? No? Okay. Good. This, that's what coffee's for. And I understand that we're going uh, to shoot for about 10.05, if that's all right, uh, for the break. Um, and then we come together at 10.30, so it might even go to 10.10. So that will give us uh, f- you know, 50 minutes from now. Um, and then there will be a break until 10.30, and there will be coffee and good-looking treats out there, so you have that to look forward to. Um, I, I guess to begin, <coughs> I, I should concede something here. Right. The uh, stated topic for the day is uh, for this morning, this first uh, session this morning is what does the Bible (coughs) say about baptism? And uh, um, I I should give you a little bit of setup or background. When uh, Jim contacted me uh, last spring in May about coming out here, uh, we talked also about what the theme for for the talk should be. Um, and what should be presented and what kind of Bible study we should do. And instead of suggesting, oh, why don't we talk about um, what the LCA is talking about, and that is sexuality, I immediately said, let's not talk about that because everyone is tired of talking about that. And then Jim, uh, you know, uh, pressed me a little ball, you know, come, come up with something. I thought, well, people still probably want to talk about it. This was before the vote was taken, and now we're after the vote was taken, and maybe people still want to talk about it. So I'll... I'll come up with some. I'll come up with a theme that kind of gets to some of the issues that the church is talking about now, but do it in a, at least initially, at first, in a safe way, so that instead of talking about uh, human sexuality or homosexuality or um, the ordination of gay and lesbian uh, people in um, what the documents call publicly accountable, uh, committed, lifelong monogamous same-gender relationships, or palms are if you want the shorthand. Um, uh, instead of talking about that in particular, let's talk about other issues that, 
that have divided Christians, more broad issues, perhaps even more foundational issues, and, and go with some of these themes about that, how do Lutherans read the scripture, um, how do communities, uh, how are communities authoritative in interpreting the scripture, and how do we get along with each other when we disagree. So that, that sort of, um, now, now the cat's out of the bag, now you know the, uh, uh, the design. And so I want to say with that, um, that uh, perhaps uh, in the end, um, if there are questions about the votes that the ELCA has taken, um, a good time to talk about that would be during the last session, especially. We can go as long as you want. You can stay as long as you want, and uh, we can keep, uh, keep talking about it as long as you want. So in other words, I'm giving you permission uh, to ask those questions and to talk about um, the present hermeneutical controversy. There's a good word for you. Hermeneutics, right? Uh, the, the art or science of interpretation and, the, and the, the lenses we use to interpret. It's a hermeneutical conf, uh, controversy that we're facing uh, in our denomination and in all denominations. Um, there's usually one issue or another boiling about what does the Bible say about this? And for us, this right now is um, homosexuality, human sexuality, and uh, ordination. Anyone have a comment about that? We're going to be, I'm not going to be doing as much talking today. I'm going to be hearing more from you, so we can maybe warm up a little bit and hear from you. Is that all right if, if I do open that, if people are interested? Okay. All right. All right. So you, you, see, you see the program here. Now, 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 uh, now you get the uh, ulterior motive here, right? We're talking about how Lutherans read Scripture, and um, uh, we're talking about... Um, how it is that Christians, Lutheran Christians even, can read the same Bible and yet come out on opposite sides uh, in their interpretation. And we want to talk about how we, what the scripture says about how we still need to regard each other in the face of those disagreements. <clears throat> All right. Um, let's see. Start off with some preliminaries. Now, if you're taking notes, great. Um, if you turns out you find these helpful... And you go, oh, gosh, I wish I brought my notepaper or I don't have a little piece of paper to shove in my Bible here. Um, I think we're going to load all of these onto the, the CDs that are being made. Is that right? All these PowerPoints? I mean, we can do that, right? So if, if you see something up here and you go, oh, I wish I'd written that down, um, it'll be available in some version, either on the CD or you can even just email me at wearsma at augsburg.edu and I'll send it to you. I might make a note. There is a piece of paper couple of them out there where you can sign up if you would like to have a copy of the, of the CD of the recording of all of this to take to somebody else that couldn't come or, or just for your own benefit. They cost $5 and there's a, there's a list out there and a little basket where you can put your $5 in if you want uh, a copy. Uh, the, the, uh, you you need to order one if you want one. Is what I'm saying. Bethel doesn't want to print up a whole bunch of them yeah. that just become uh, shelf. So. All right. Okay. So those of you, if you want something on a CD, that's available. If you're cheap like me, you know I have Dutch ancestry, and we're as as a as a nationality, we're uh, tragically cheapskates. Um, you know, you can always send me an email and I can, I'll send you, send you the uh, file. All right, some preliminaries here. Um, as we uh, 
determine what the Bible says about something. As we uh, gather together in a community uh, to read God's word, search God's word, God's word, and discern what God's word is saying to us right now, um, here are some things to keep in mind. Um, some questions to ask of the Holy Scripture that we are encountering. First one is, uh, is what is being said in the passage or verse or whatever we're looking at, is what is being said prescriptive or descriptive? Is what is being said prescriptive or descriptive? Now, I said we're going to do Bible study today, and we're going to do it right away here. So if you brought your Bibles, open them up. Are there Bibles in the pew? That's good, too. Okay, and now we'll just start at the beginning. Genesis 1. And uh, look at verse 26 of the, 20, of the first chapter of Genesis. And I would like somebody to read, if I may ask for volunteer, verses 26, 27, and 28. Great, great. I'll hold it for you if you want. Then God said, let us make humankind in our image, according to our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, and over the wild animals of the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. All right. Familiar passage? Okay. Uh, Prescriptive or descriptive? Those of you who know those words. Prescriptive. And in which way is it prescriptive? Okay, so there's, there's an implied command or prescription in the last verse that says, let them do this, right? So you could call that a subjunctive imperative or those of you who know grammar well. Um, what is that called again? When you start with let, let us do something, help all right, never mind. Um, it has a grammatical, uh, technical term for it. All right, let us, um, or let them, right? Uh, the idea being that this is what you humans should do. Uh, you should be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish and the sea. Oh, yeah, my version is just be fruitful and multiply, right? That's the command. And, in fact, Luther loved to talk about this as the first commandment or the original commandment in the Bible, right? This comes way before the Ten Commandments, and he talks about this especially in the context of talking about marriage and the vows of celibacy that um, about 10% of the people in his time were asked to take. Um, uh, what does the Bible say? Look, the first thing the Bible says in terms of command, a command of the humans is be fruitful and multiply. So that's a prescription. So this is a passage has a prescriptive element, certainly. And a descriptive element, which is? Yeah. How God did it. It's just describing uh, how, good, how God made uh, humankind or mankind. And, and it's describing that God made them uh, in his image and that he made them male and female in his image. So that's uh, descriptive. Okay? Hans, yes? Would you comment on the fact that it, it says us? Let us. Yeah, that's a that's a translation from the Hebrew. Everyone kind of uh, stumbles over that, so it's 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 a, a, a good thing to stumble over. Let us. Why, what in these first chapters of Genesis? Why does God refer to Himself in the plural? Uh, and here, the word for God is Elohim, which actually is a Hebrew 
the Hebrew word with a plural ending. So the word for God here has, it's what's unique about the Hebrew word for God in these first three chapters is that it uses a plural ending. And then it uses a plural pronoun, the first person plural pronoun, us. And so people wondered, you know, what's going on there? And so, you know, Christian theologians will say, well, that's, um, uh, that's uh, the Trinity talking to itself. And other people will say, no, that's God talking to the angels, uh, the heavenly beings that have already been created somewhere between this day and the first day. Um, and other people say it's just, um, uh, it's just maybe a, a royal conceit, like when the queen says, we are not amused, right? Uh, so there's all kinds of ways to interpret it. Unfortunately, no one, no one has ever said, here is the way it must be interpreted. Um, the rabbis from long before Jesus uh, wrestled with that in the commentary on the Torah. I would think it would refer to Jesus. Right. I think that's a legitimate Christian interpretation, that it's, it's God the Father, uh, God the Son, and God the Spirit, right? This original community that predates the creation or precedes the creation, right? Yep. I like that interpretation, I have to say. As a Christian, it certainly works, but Jews, of course, would not agree with that interpretation. I have an aha that may or may not be relevant here, but some Hebrew nouns are a plural of magnitude. Yep. The, yes, nice. Yep. So I wonder right. if this is a plural of magnitude or majesty. Um, you know, when they talk of water, yep. they mean big, big water. Yep. Um, and so I wonder. I, I'm just, yeah, it's really nice. It's yeah. Like yeah. That's good. It works. It works. Um, it doesn't always work because whenever Elohim is used in the rest of the Old Testament, the, the personal pronoun that's used is the first person singular. So he, I mean I, right? But here it's us, we. And that is interesting here at the beginning. Yes, sir. Yeah, this is a great choice of verses. So also on those very controversial verses, some people would say we can pollute the air as much as we like because we have different Right, yeah. yeah. Um, that's the other point, right? The prescription is... Um, uh, be fruitful and multiply, and then have dominion over the earth. Uh, the next discussion is um, how do we do that, and how well are we doing with and obeying that command? Uh, are there limits to our understanding of what it means to multiply, um, and are there limits to our understanding of what it means to have dominion over or to subdue? Right. So yeah, that's a whole other. You know, there are a lot of people uh, better at that subject than I am, um, who you could invite, you know, about creation and taking care of creation. Um, so that's, that's, the, that's the idea here, right? Prescription, description. If you want to go a little further, just to be a little provocative, uh, go to uh, the end of Genesis chapter 2. <clears throat> and just read the 24th verse. Since, since you read so well, I'm going to have you just finish our Genesis unit here. Okay. Verse 24. Just, just verse 24 in chapter 2. Yeah. Okay. Therefore... A man leaves his father and his mother and clings to his wife, and they become one flesh. All right. Prescriptive or descriptive? descriptive. Certainly descriptive. In that translation, certainly, um, it's saying the language is descriptive. It doesn't sound like there's a command uh, here. Um, it sounds at least grammatically descriptive that this is what a man does. And when, when a man does this, the two become one flesh. So it's at least descriptive. Is there, go ahead. In one sense, it says a man. Now, and I don't know the grammar or anything, but I don't think he's talking about one person. Uh-huh. A single, 
Yeah, this seems to be describing more than what Adam and Eve have just done, right? This is therefore a man, that is, men gener- generally, men in general. Uh, the problem, of course, comes in, in as we try and apply this prescriptively. Um, would you be willing to say that this means that every single man ever created uh, needs to leave his parents and leave his, what is it, his father's house? leave his, his father and mother and uh, cling to his wife. I mean, are you willing to go that far? That this is prescriptive then for every man? Now you say, no, every man? And now you might be thinking ahead, well, what about Jesus when he talks about you know, people being uh, eunuchs in uh, Matthew 19? Um, so, and that comes, that's another uh, strategy that we're going to look at. So we at least have decided this is descriptive, but the manner in which this is prescriptive is open to further discussion further interpretation. All right. Next one. Whoops. Did I blow the numbers here? Oh, I'm missing a slide. We're missing number two. I'll tell you what it is, and I'll add it in there before I make this uh, public. I apologize for that. Um, the second one is, uh, is it clearly stated, um, is, is what is being said clearly stated or clearly implied. And you can put clearly in parentheses. Is what is being said clearly stated, or is it clearly implied? And now it's going to get interesting. Um, Turn to uh, Leviticus 18. I said we're not going to talk about homosexuality, but this is all examples uh, for this, and it might come up later, right? Um, Turn to Leviticus 18. Do Do you need me to repeat that? Is what is being said... Clearly, you can put that in parentheses, uh, stated or clearly implied. So without parentheses, it would read, is what is being said stated, explicitly, let's say, or implied? Okay, we'll see how that works here. Uh, Leviticus 18, verse uh, 21 and 22. Uh, now, it might, for those of you who are... This is all in the Bible, of course, but some of the Bible is harder to uh, read than others, and some of it makes us more uncomfortable than other parts of it. And, of course, this passage of Leviticus uh, makes my college students uh, all kinds of uh, interested in the Bible. I mean, they're, they're never more interested in the Bible than the day we look at uh, Leviticus 18, the whole chapter. Okay? Uh, in some of your Bibles, it might say uh, sexual laws or sexual prohibitions. Okay? We're, um, we're just looking at uh, verse uh, 21 and 22 of 18 right now. I can't figure out how the slide dropped out of there. I obviously did something wrong. Uh, who, would like to, who would like to read that one for us? Do not give any of your children to be sacrificed to Moloch, for you must not profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. Do not lie with a man as one lies with a woman. That is detestable. Uh, Do one more. Do not have sexual relations with an animal and defile yourself with it. A woman must not present herself to an animal to have sexual relations with it. That is a perversion. All right. Descriptive or prescriptive? This is prescriptive. Is it clear? Are the three prescriptions there clear? Okay. And what are the three prescriptions? Okay. Uh, you shall not sacrifice your animals to the, um, the Amalekite god named Molech. Uh, 
so that's good. Uh, you should not lie with a man as you would another man, uh, as, as with a woman. Um, that is an abomination, prescriptive. That seems clear. And then the third one is about um, uh, lying with an animal. Um, so the, the, those prescriptions seem clearly stated. What about um, something like this? Uh, you shall not lie with a woman um, as you would with a man. That's not in there, right? Uh, it just says you shall not lie with a man as you would lie with a woman, um, implying that the person who the prescription is being directed at is a man, right? That's consistent with the way the Bible was written. It doesn't mean that it doesn't include all people. That's the question, right? Is this a place where we can say implied is the same prohibition against same-gender relationships for women? Can we, can we say that that's clearly implied or, or maybe somewhat implied? It's not, exp- it's not stated explicitly, but the idea is, and we're going to see this all over, right? In Ephesians 6, you know, it says fathers don't, uh, uh, don't anger your children. And it's just fathers. So does that mean mothers can anger their children? Right? We know how this works in the scripture. Once, you know, when something, when one person is designated, we are often likely to extend it to the people who are not explicitly named because the implication seems clear, right? And the same thing with the next one, right? Um, the last part is, is aimed at women um, and lying with an animal. Um, but again, you can imply, and it seems clearly implied, that men are included there also. And what makes it clear sometimes is just the context. Um, but sometimes we're going to have shades of disagreement about how clear the implications are, Right? But at least we can have the discussion. And that's what's behind uh, that second question. And I'll fix that on the slide. Here's the third, um, the third item. Is it applicable only in certain contexts or is it applicable universally? This is the big one, of course, on this particular issue. Uh, this one came up a lot. So let's look at the rest of Leviticus 18. We're not going to read the whole thing, but... Um, uh, just uh, looking at verse 6 of Leviticus 18. None of you shall approach anyone near of kin to uncover nakedness. I am the Lord. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father, which is the nakedness of your mother. She is your mother. You shall not uncover her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife. It is the nakedness of your father, and so on and so forth, right? Uh, defining boundaries uh, about our sexual relations. And in this section, of course, the, the, what Leviticus 18 is primarily concerned with is boundaries uh, between uh, family relations, you know, making sure that the family, the, the inner family uh, stays separate and they don't commingle in a sexual way. Um, what do you think? Is that uh, universally applicable? Or is it just for that particular context of those ancient Hebrews traveling around the wilderness um, somewhere around 1200 B.C.? Well, I mean, if you look at, um, there are more genetic birth defects uh-huh. when you have closely more closely related people. Yeah. So that would be a reason why you wouldn't want to um, intermarry with those. That would be one reason. Um, some of the prohibitions are um, against having sexual relations with people who you don't share DNA with, right? It's father, stepmother, um, things like that. I think, uh, I think the question is a very foundation of 
what's going wrong right. these days. Because if, if it's up to me to judge what Scripture says is applicable to me, then I'm putting myself in the way of what God is saying. Right. Or if I, and it's a foundation for saying, well, what the Bible says, does that applied back then, but it doesn't mm-hmm. fit in the social environment of today, and therefore it doesn't count. And if we do that, if we take this uh, question so loosely like that, why we totally undermine the foundation upon which our, our Christianity is built. So I hear what you're asking. These are, the, these are the questions that are being asked. Does that line up in, Genesis, in Leviticus 18 about um, same-sex relationships apply universally or just for that time? And I don't think, you can, I don't think it works to, to benefit either side. The people who are for, um, in, the, in the recent debate, for same-sex relationships or ordaining gay and lesbian clergy said, well, look at Leviticus. That's a line from Leviticus. And look at everything else it prohibits, which we don't pay attention to anymore, right? Um, eating ham sandwiches, for instance. Um, so the, the argument was, um, since there are many laws in Leviticus which the Christians uh, have forsaken centuries ago, uh, why don't we just forsake this one? And then what the, question, the next question that didn't get asked, which should have been asked, um, is, well, what about the prohibitions which we do still adhere to in Leviticus, especially Leviticus 18? Um, so that's why I don't think either side of the argument really was working very well on Leviticus 18. You follow me? Uh, because the other side of the argument is, well, if you're going to say um, uh, same-sex relationships are just applicable to that time, are we also going to say that these relationships about incest are applicable just for that time, and now they don't matter? So it, it wasn't working either way. Go ahead. There's a reason why we can eat ham sandwiches. Because in the New Covenant, Jesus, in the New Covenant oh, I'm sorry. Jesus said... What comes out of a man defiles him, yep. not what goes in. So our, when Jesus said that, who we believe is a lawgiver, our relationship to those dietary laws changed. It, there's nothing arbitrary at all. Plus, and it can also be argued that we're Gentiles, so some of those do not apply to us because we're Gentiles. Yep. Uh, those are things from the first century church, right? Those yeah. decisions. As opposed to being arbitrary that we yeah. just don't do it because we don't like it. Right. And, and so you got the sense that, that Christians were just sort of arbitrarily deciding which ones we do follow, which ones we don't. When in fact, um, uh, from the very beginning, even the New Testament, Christians have always deliberated together about how the law applies. And you have that, that very real concern in the New Testament about, about food. And then it's interesting how that was being applied to the question of sexuality. It's talking about food, but people were trying to apply it with limited success, I think, to the question of sexuality. But anyway, you see that you see that you see this is true, right? If you just flip back a, a, a page, go to uh, Leviticus 16. Yeah. All, yeah, I would say all the sexual prohibitions in 18, are they applicable universally? Okay, right. But I mean, there's, no, there's no place in the Bible that is, or in this, this section that is saying 
this only applies to a context. So I think we have to assume that it is universal. I guess that's what I want to ask then. For the, if you just go back a little bit. Okay. Um, what verse were you? Uh, 16 verse 29 in Leviticus. I mean, you can do this for anything in Leviticus. Uh, verse 29. <clears throat> uh, actually, uh, back up just a little bit. Uh, verse 27. The bull of sin offering and the goat of the sin offering, whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place, shall be taken outside the camp. Their skin and their flesh and their dung shall be consumed in fire. The one who burns them shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water and afterward may come into the camp. This shall be a statute to you forever. In the seventh month, and here's a new one. In the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall deny yourselves and shall do no work, neither the citizen nor the alien who resides among you. For on this day, atonement shall be made for you to cleanse you. Okay, Christians, is that the first time most of you are looking at that? Right? Um, that, that's, that series of laws uh, has, doesn't apply to Christians, and we can make the argument it's because, well, for the, sac- the sacrifice verses, this says Christ, the sacrifice has been made for us, and so we're no longer liable to, uh, especially as Gentile Christians, to, the, uh, to perform the Jewish uh, sacrifices. And then this uh, Day of Atonement, where everyone gets a break uh, every seventh month. It would be nice to have that one, um, but we don't, we don't o- obey that particular law. Um, could we if we wanted to? Probably. We would be free, right? So the idea is that I don't think we can escape the fact that, we, that this question gets asked, and it's being asked in terms of sexuality now, but it's been asked for a long, long time. It was asked in the New Testament. If you read Acts, the Jerusalem Council gets together. They want to know. Um, does, the, does the Jewish law apply to the new Gentile Christians? And they say no, except for um, fornication and a couple other things, food sacrificed idols. Um, so th- that's, that's a discussion they're having. Does the, does the Jewish law apply to Christians? And if, if so, how? So that's what that question is about. Um, and there are, of course, other places where it's clear that it's just for a, a certain time and place. Um, uh, in other places where we might have to have a bigger conversation. Yeah. When you said the New Testament says no, uh, you're not talking about the Ten Commandments then, are you? You're talking about the other uh, interpretations of all that throughout Jewish law? Or what do you mean by Jewish law? Everything. All Jewish law. In the time of Jesus, right? That was the question. Um, how are Christians who are now in Christ, liable to all of the Jewish law. We're actually going to look at Paul on this. Um, yes, ma'am. scripture, I just know the scripture. It, it, it says in Isaiah, I don't remember the scripture, but in Jeremiah it's made clear that there'll be no more sacrifices because even there has been pro- pro- prophesied that Jesus was the one to come to do that for the Jews. Right. Because the Jews are saved first, remember? It says that in even the New Testament. The, it's come for the Jews, and so they're not even under that part of the law anymore either. Even though, because because they don't have sacrifices no more. Right. God is not allowed it because He gave uh, all of us. Right. The they do. Some groups do still do sacrifices. Not in this country so much. Um, not at all in this country. 
yeah, I would be surprised to find out if they did it in this country. But it's still, you know, what the idea by, of, of some, some um, very Zionistic Jews is to rebuild the temple so that the sacrificial system can be reinstituted. I mean, there are some very conservative Jews in Israel who are, are hoping to do that. Right now, since there's no temple, um, a lot of Jews say, well, the sacrifices are off for now. But, right, you are aware of some Zionists who would like to see the temple rebuilt. And, no. and the temple will be rebuilt so that the, the ancient practices of sacrifice can be um, begun again and so that uh, God will have a place uh, to reside again. Well, the Jews locally here in California, because I have visited a lot of synagogues uh-huh. in the last year or so, and I actually listened to them, and I, don't, I haven't heard anybody want to have a sacrifice back. No. And Nobody I, and, wants to no. have to be and there, And there, of course, you're right. Most, the, the rabbis, after the temple was destroyed, uh, those, most Jews around the world say the sacrifices are off, right? Now God, all God wants is a sacrifice of the heart, or of a contrite heart, right? Um, but I'm just trying to point out that this is, this is a question that, that, whether you like it or not, uh, gets asked. And I think in many cases it's a legitimate question. Is one of your... So the, the list in Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 19 are sort of what we would call a laundry list. Is there, in all the translations that I have, they don't seem to distinguish between one being more important or less important than another except for these, it's abhorrent or something like that. So yeah, I don't think they're meant to. Are they all equally equal laws, or are some more important than others, as it was written at the time? That's another great question. Um, there's no there's no indication in the scripture itself that some are more important. Um, you have the giving of the Ten Commandments, and then you have uh, in Jewish tradition, at least, um, most rabbis will say all the other laws, 625 of them, that are recorded in the first five books, uh, are basically commentary or further direction on how to fear and love God. or you know, um, So the, those Ten Commandments are the, sort of the original Torah, and the other laws are embellishment on, on that, and then everything else that happens is kind of um, development of, of that. So well, I think of it concentrically. Ten Commandments, uh, the rest of the laws, and then the history, the prophets. Well, and that's just it, right? The rabbis will, will, will say, no, you know, some of these are more important than the other ones, right? And Christians would say that too, right? For us, the most important commandment, uh, uh, according to Lutheran Christians at least, is uh, you shall have no other gods. And the idea being that you start with that one, the other ones are going to kind of follow. Um, so you, I don't think you can make the argument that clearly in the Old Testament you kind of get this ranking of which laws are more important, but maybe between some of them, like trimming your beard, and uh, you shall not kill, you can have a discussion about maybe you shall not kill is more important. Right? I think that's a legitimate discussion. So is that distinction you made because of this argument of the concentric effect of the concentric of God, the Ten Commandments, and then... Right. But, you know, trimming your beard... Trimming, trimming, trimming your beard more important or less important than... There you go. I'm sure there's another rabbi who says trimming your beard is a way more important because trimming your beard tells you how you should... Um, have no other gods, tells you how you should honor God. So that's why I'm really hesitant to say there's these, you know, uh, rankings of, of the laws. But again, I think the other thing to say is that the, the question for Christians is what is our relationship to the Jewish law here? And are we really going to throw the whole thing out? Um, I don't think so. I don't want to throw away all of Leviticus 18. I think there's some pretty good prohibitions in there. 
So that's the idea here, though. We, we ask these questions uh, and, and ask God to uh, lead us in, the, in, the, in discernment of the way to properly understand the passage. Did you want to you have one question? Then I'm going yeah, to keep moving on this one. I, yeah? I had a couple of things. Uh, and I don't know how you do the right terminology for this, but isn't it, and it may be one of your five, you don't just take from one section of the Bible and say, then I'm going to interpret that for all time. It is the entire Bible. Uh-huh. Is it repeated? Do I see it in more one okay. place? Good. How does that all right, good. then fall out? Is that one of your... It's coming. Okay, sorry. <laughs> no, are you kidding? Yeah, that's awesome, right? So you guys are, are well ahead of me here. What else does the Bible say about what is being said? That, that's the next question to ask. If there does seem to be unclarity, especially about the, the question, uh, is this a, a local prescription or a description or something universal? Let's see what else the Bible has to say about it, right? Of course, that's what we do. We've been doing that for centuries. And so you go on to um, look at what else the Bible has to say about it. And we could look, I'm running out of time here, uh, but we could look at other passages um, in the New Testament as well as in the Old Testament about um, safe sex behavior. If you want to know what those are, we can, I can mention those later. And I think I can talk pretty well about arguments on both sides. And then the fifth one here, uh, is there a meta passage that qualifies what the Bible says about this? This being whatever you're looking at. Okay, by meta passage, I mean, is there a sort of a trump card is probably the wrong word, but sometimes it gets used this way, right? Um, I'm not saying is there a meta passage that cancels out or crosses out uh, what the Bible says or undoes what the Bible says. I'm, I'm asking here, is there a meta passage that, w- that we can apply kind of a theme verse, maybe, a, a, a verse that's sort of foundational that we can apply that will inform our discussion um, uh, or qualify our discussion about a passage that's giving us trouble. Yes, ma'am. I don't think there's any meta passage that cancels out anything in the Bible. I just said the exact same thing. We're not to do yeah. that. We're to believe all the word of God, and I can't quote a scripture that says that, but it says that, and I don't remember where it says that, but quite a few places it says that we are to believe God's word. God commands us to believe his word, because if, you know, that's what he commands us to believe, his word. That that's all of it, old and yeah, new. I, I and fully 100% old, agree. The old, the old re, uh, the, uh, all of it, scripture reveals scripture, scripture exclaims explain yeah. scripture. Wonderful. That's exactly what I'm saying here. I'm not saying anything cancels anything out. I'm saying, is there a meta passage that we can apply here that informs or qualifies um, how we're believing what the Bible says to be true? So I'm, I'm, I'm not, I hope I'm not saying anything different than what you just said. Uh, Lutheran Christians have always had this idea of a scripture in a scripture or a canon within a canon, that there are certain passages and certain themes that will inform uh, the maybe less central or more more complicated or more problematic uh, areas of scripture. Yeah. Didn't you just give an example of that where you said the uh, you should love your Lord your God and or you shall have yeah. no other gods before yeah. me? That's an example of a meta. That would be a meta passage exactly. Just interpret. Yeah. And if you want to find where the Lutheran meta passages are, we're going to look at this later. We're going to look at the small catechism, right? There's there's this the idea of having a catechism is so that. Uh, believers, especially people who are new to the Bible, can have kind of a guideline for how to read the scripture and what the meta passages are, what the central uh, passages and themes are. Um, so which, which meta passage would you apply? Um, you know, you shall have no other gods. 
Uh, you should not commit adultery. Uh, might be some of the commandments you can apply. You might also want to, um, you know, look at Romans. Uh, let's, let's just look at Romans 3, verse 21 and following. And then, go ahead. Oh, sorry. And then I'm going to move on to baptism real quick and uh, do, have a little exercise in discernment here. I get this feeling that some of you think I'm trying to sell you something, and I'm really not trying to sell you anything. Uh, you know, Christians have, for a long time, um, uh, searched the Word of God. Before we had a New Testament, they searched uh, the Hebrew Scriptures. And now that God has given us the New Testament, we search the New Testament as well. We've searched in community the Word of God uh, at the beckoning of the Holy Spirit for God's guidance in how to properly interpret it. And, uh, you know, the thing about Scripture is that we've always claimed that you can't interpret it correctly unless you have the Holy Spirit to interpret it. So I'm uh, outlining some of the questions that get asked as we together uh, try to understand what God is saying to us through Scripture. So uh, Romans chapter 3, verses, we'll start with verse 21. I have to get it myself. Nice loud reader. Who wants to tackle that one? Who wants to preach to us? Whoever does, let's make sure we use the microphone. Yeah. And if you have a question, raise your hand, we'll get the mic to you. All right. So I'm that sorry. Everything gets on the CD. We need, I want to, I want, we've had two, uh, go ahead. She's right here. Yep. But now a righteousness from God, apart from law, has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. Keep going. All the way to 26. This righteousness comes from God. No, this righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrament of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Two more. Two more verses. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. On what principle? On that of observing the law? No, but on that of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. All right, good. To me, is this passage is it's not God's standard of living, it's the world's standard of living. Pardon me? It's the world's standard of living. Oh. What you just read is the world's yes. standard of living? No. What, no. What's going on in this day? Oh, right, right, now? yeah. It's not God's standard of living, it's the world's standard of living. Right. Right. And that passage is a meta passage. You know, when, when Christians apply the world's standards of living, whether it be to sexuality or finances or care of creation or whatever, um, uh, what then? Well, this can serve as a meta passage. You know, even if we um, uh, do fall short in any number of ways, uh, what matters most? Well, Christ's righteousness matters most. And the promise of Christ's righteousness given to us, received in faith, 
for our righteousness before God. The conversation about sexuality, however, is a conversation really, I think, it's a law conversation. It's a conversation about our, uh, about human relationships, human, uh, law, neighbor to neighbor, our righteousness, uh, in community and so forth, right? Um, it's also, um, a conversation about what is pleasing to God and what is not pleasing to God. But in terms of what matters most, Romans 3, I think most Christians will say, well, if we're going to kind of look inward and look at our own sins or, or non-sins, we all have to remember that we're kind of on the same footing here. Um, our righteousness before God is not going to be found in our, in our conduct. Yeah? Just real quick. Um, she was reading, I don't know, I don't know what uh, translation she was reading. Mine uh, New Living. is NKGV, but... Um, in the words where she said, or where that translation said justice, God's justice, uh, um, in my translation, says righteousness. Same word. So, yeah, I'd yeah. never thought of them as the same yeah. word. I was asking if you could comment on that. Yeah. Um, it, it's, if you think about what justice is, though, it's the right thing being done. And that's the idea of righteousness as well. Um, so, for English, it's problematic because in some cases, justice makes more sense. In some cases, righteousness makes more sense. Justice, when we say justice, it sounds like, um, you know, a courtroom, somebody's making a legal decision. And sometimes the New Testament doesn't always have that in mind. It might just be determining, you know, uh, whether what you're doing is right or not without anyone making a legal decision. So that's the, the reason for the split. But in the New Testament, the word's the same. All right, so those are five ways. I'm, I'm glad I kind of got some uh, blood boiling here. The idea being uh, that uh, when Christians read the Bible together, uh, sparks fly, and um, things that are very important to us come to the fore, and that's as it should be, um, uh, especially as it, re- as it regards God's word. Um, so these are, are five useful approaches to discerning God's word uh, that I found useful, at least. And... Um, um, Maybe we can find them useful as we go forward here a little bit. Let's apply it to baptism now, because we know that there's a division in Christianity about baptism, um, and we want to know what the Bible says about baptism. Uh, so there's our, our uh, picture again. I, I, I have this other one, a full-color one, uh, by Hans Holbein. You see the same themes. You see there at the top left-hand side, Moses uh, received the law. You see Adam and Eve and the serpent there in the middle left. You see a skeleton uh, with death. You know, what's missing? In this one, well, the fiery flames of hell are missing. Uh, instead, uh, in, in, in the two different guys on both sides, they're missing. Here's the other one, right? The, the man, uh, Latin homo, <laughs> um, there in the, the tree, uh, he's, he's being pointed away from the left-hand side and toward what's happening on the right-hand side, right? Um, if you want to get out of the fix you're in, in other words, this is the same idea, uh, look to Christ. Uh, put your trust in Christ uh, the Lamb of God. So that's another version. But some things are missing here, right? The, the blood pouring out of Jesus' side is missing here. The fiery flames of hell. Um, so Holbein's picture, it, you'd interpret it a little bit differently because the, the scenes are the same, but the images are different. So here, I just want to underscore here, um, I kind of love what's going on here, right? There's an allegory for baptism here, and that is that the blood, the watery blood flowing out of Jesus' side, as I mentioned last night, uh, uh, connects with the Holy Spirit. And, and that spiritual um, blood water then covers uh, the, 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 the man standing there, the faithful believer. So you got in this a really interesting depiction of baptism. And of course, it's not full immersion, it's sprinkling. 
Uh, but let's see how this works. Um, we're having some fun with this. I'm working on a curriculum right now for Augsburg Fortress um, called People of Faith Bible Studies. And uh, we have, maybe you've seen some of the, the original versions have come out now. And uh, we have a good cartoonist, but I'm the one um, who's coming up with these cartoon ideas. And so this is one for one they're publishing now. It's John the Baptist standing in uh, the river there with his hands crossed. In the new version, he's actually got his hand going like this, pointing at the river. And Jesus is standing by the font going, what about? So, uh, thus begins the immersion versus sprinkling debate. And then I want to show you one other thing here. There's no sound here, but just watch what happens. It's a Baptist church. Maybe we can dim the lights. Is that possible? It's a Baptist church, and kids are being baptized in the big baptismal font. And that kid just got baptized, and now here comes the other kid who's going to get baptized. Here he comes. So if, if we had the audio, you'd hear everybody laughing and uh, the, the pastors, you know, trying to keep it together. He's going to grab his Bible here and ring it out. The kid's smiling. This is just a little YouTube viral video. And everyone's still laughing. The kid's laughing. Watch him pull the kid. Watch him jerk the kid. Come here. And then, he went, and then he's going to say something to the congregation. He goes, I've been a pastor for 25 years, and I want to tell you something. That's the first time anything like that's ever happened, and then everyone kind of applauds. And then he goes, watch him. And he goes, and it's also the last. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there he watch, he's going to go, it's also the last. There you go. All right. You want to see that again, don't you? All right, here it goes. Okay, that's the first kid. fun watching your uh, response to that. Let's, um, of course, I knew I were gonna, we were going to go longer. I should have known that, that uh, those five, five areas were going to be um, uh, entertaining and um, uh, challenging for us. Uh, so I'm going to quick do this. I wanted, this is kind of going to be our program as we look at the Lord's Supper also and then later this afternoon as we look at the question of how we as Christians um, uh, are, are asked to um, regard those who are also in the Christian body with whom we don't agree. So this is kind of the, the outline for our discernment here. Um, and so let's ask a question about baptism. Uh, what does the Bible say about baptism? So here, as a body uh, gathered together, I'm just going to ask, what does the Bible say about baptism? What are the relevant passages, in other words? Okay, John the Baptist. So one area uh, that we might want to look, if we want to look at the answer to the question, what does the Bible say about baptism, is... John the Baptist, right? John the Baptist baptizes with Jesus. He, uh, he baptizes Jesus. He baptizes with water. When he talks about Jesus in a, couple of the past, in a couple of the Gospels, he says, someone is coming whose laces I'm not fit to tie, uh, who will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire, right? Whoa. Okay, so we might want to look at that. What else? Well, or, or the centurion uh, in the chariot. 
the centurion in the chariot. Uh, so now we're talking. So we're, there we're talking about the baptism of Jesus passages. Now we're talking about Acts uh, uh, chapter eight. Yeah, and, and you know. So now, are you thinking of the centurion or the the Ethiopian eunuch? Ethiopian yeah. eunuch. Yeah. In the chariot. He's in the chariot. And so there, isn't there water here? Yeah. Can't we be baptized now? Yep. And yes. What's to prevent me from being baptized? And Philip says, that's a good question. Look, there's water, right? Okay, so that might be one, uh, uh, a, a passage that, would, that we could look at. The Great Commission, excellent. Uh, and who's got the Great Commission memorized? Nice. And that's part one. You're totally right, right? Matthew 28, uh, the Great Commission. Again, if you want to talk about a meta passage, this might serve as one. Uh, Go therefore into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, like you just said, and teaching them to obey my commands. That's the second part of the Great Commission. And then Jesus follows up with a promise. End of the end of the Gospel of Matthew. What's the promise? Okay, so you know this, right? So, if you want to talk about what does the Bible say about baptism, this is another place we're going to look. Obviously, we're going to look at Matthew 28, uh, the last uh, few verses. Where else are we going to look? The other passage that's always mentioned for child baptism is, uh, uh, let the children come to me. Let the children come to me, right? But it doesn't mention baptism. Ah, but it doesn't mention baptism specifically. So, this, I would say, is an example of a passage that Lutherans bring and other Christians have brought in defense of infant baptism, even though it doesn't specifically cite baptism. Um, it does say, let the children come to me and do not, you know, do not hinder them. Um, and so this has been applied to baptism. Our Baptist friends would reject that as a legitimate application of that verse to the question of baptism. In fact, they would say, well, if Jesus was such a fan of infant baptism, why didn't he just baptize him right there? That's what your Baptist friends would say. What's that? Hey, Jan. Hey, Cora. How are you? <laughs> All right, so, uh, so we would, but we would, we, that's a, a, an example of a passage that we could look at, a sort of meta passage or um, non, an implied passage that we could apply. But uh, he baptized households. He baptized households, okay? Or, or the early apostles baptized households. So Acts 16, um, you have the baptism of Lydia's household, and then later in the chapter, the baptism of the household of the Philippian jailer. Um, uh, um, Paul talks about in the beginning of 1 Corinthians how he just baptized one household, uh, the household of Stephanus. So you have in the New Testament uh, the fact that um, households, entire households were baptized when the pater or mater familias was baptized or came to faith, right? So the, you would want to look at that. And your Baptist friends would say, yes, but only the children who could decide for themselves were baptized. Clearly, the, the uh, two-year-olds were not baptized. Pastor, is it true that nowhere in the Bible did Jesus baptize anyone? Uh, who's, who, who just asked the question? Uh, yes, I think that is true, right? In, in, in one of the passages, it says, you know, Jesus didn't baptize, but the, the, he commanded the disciples to baptize. The, the, the disciples did that work for him. Um, so you would want to look at that. What does that mean, that Jesus himself didn't baptize? Uh, but the disciples were the ones who were commanded to baptize. How about Romans 6.3? Romans 6.3. And why stop there? Why not do 4 and 5, right? Romans 6.3, uh, 4 and 5. 
So, um, so I'm going to pick and choose some of these, and not arbitrarily. I have a reason for picking some of these, but these are all great. Yes, ma'am. way that Jesus baptized, it was not with water, because okay. water baptism is the wa- baptism of repentance, so that you have the grace to repent. But he baptized with fire in the Holy Spirit, yeah. and that was not water. So we're going to have to have a, we're going to have to question, fire. exactly, we're going to have to have a conversation about that. Um, in Acts, you have uh, a baptism of the Holy Spirit, which seems to come with the water baptism, but not always. And the baptism of the Holy Spirit sometimes in Acts uh, looks like, uh, uh, sometimes in Acts is accompanied with the phenomenon of speaking in tongues. So if you want to have a conversation about um, what does the Bible say about baptism, and you want to take all those passages that use the word baptism explicitly, you're going to have to deal with these passages, which are challenging passages in Acts. There seems to be water baptism, and then there seems to be another kind of baptism. Um, What's that about? Go ahead. Uh, Paul seems to compare baptism to circumcision yep. in one or more passages. And Colossians, right? So you have the comparison to circumcision, which would have been the right given to Hebrew males um, to designate their, uh, their part in the kingdom, right? To, to mark them as God's chosen. And then whatever females were attached to them, they were then marked also. So, and baptism is the same thing. Paul wants to say, all of you who were baptized into Christ Jesus have clothed yourselves with Christ. All right. And that's, is that Colossians 2? Or is that Ephesians? Galatians 3, 27. Okay. Nice. Thanks. Right. So all of you have baptized, have clothed yourselves with Christ. So there's lots and lots of material here that is worthy of our attention and our reading and our uh, discernment. If you want to ask the question, what does the Bible say about baptism? Well, we can take them all together and we should, um, but... What do, you, what do you end up with if you kind of take the ones that seem more central? Um, I would like to make the argument that uh, the passage in Galatians is, is critical, but it's a, really an aside that Paul is making a part of a larger argument. Um, Paul in Galatians is not really interested that much in the subject of baptism. Uh, so that remark is something he, it's an important remark, and we need to look at it, but it's one he makes on the side. But if you look at, on the other hand, the Great Commission, I would like to say that the language of baptism there is central. And so I would like to ask or recommend that we make that one of the questions, uh, one of the passages that we're going to use to frame the discussion. Right? At some point when you come up with all these passages, um, you, like we said, you, you use them to interpret each other. But which ones seem to have pride of place? Well, Matthew 28 certainly seems to have uh, pride of, of place. Uh, this is a great commission after all. Um, what's another one that you might want to give pride of place to? You might pay attention to what the word itself means, that it is ah. heard, yeah. and that we're just conveniently saying that's not important thing. The character that was righteousness and justice is what the Greek word, or the word was, but we're not interested in the word. I'd like to hear you talk about that. Right, the word baptizo um, has a variety of meanings, but basically it's the idea of dunking uh, into, right? Um, uh, so, so I, I think people who say the original sense of the word is this idea of, of um, you know, fully immersing. I think that's, that's legitimate. Um, uh, so we want, we want to talk about what baptism means. And then we'd also want to talk about, well, what, what is baptism? Is it a submersion in the water? Or is Christian baptism really submersion 
into Jesus Christ, uh, the living Son of God, right? So we'd want to have that part of the question, too. And then the follow-up is, so therefore, does it matter uh, how much water uh, you use uh, for this baptism? Um, some people will say it does, and some people will say, no, nah, maybe not so much. So that, we have that to deal with, too, just because the original sense of the word is immersion, right? Um, uh, so um, th- there's, there's, we can struggle, we can talk about the word, but I, I want to recommend Matthew 28. But what other ones do you want to give pride of place? What about what the first day of the Christian movement, right? Pentecost Sunday, Acts uh, chapter 2. Everyone's um, speaking in the languages of the other people from the other countries gathered there. And uh, Peter has his sermon, and he goes through the Law and the Prophets, and he describes uh, how a Messiah was to suffer, and uh, says to the people who are listening to him, and I'm telling you that the one you crucified uh, is Jesus of Nazareth. And the people go, what? We crucified the Messiah? They don't say that, but that's the sense, right? They say, what should we do, right? There's this realization, after Peter has laid out uh, who Messiah is, that, oh my goodness, we've crucified him. Uh, what are we going to do? And what is Peter's answer? Let's turn into Acts chapter 2. And we're uh, towards the end here. Uh, we'll just start at Acts chapter 2, verse 36, and I'll read it. That's right. And I'm going to wrap it up here. All right. Therefore, this is the end of Peter's sermon, right? This is the first Christian sermon, so I would like to argue that we're going to give this sermon at least pride of place. Um, let the entire house of Israel, so he's, he's preaching to Jews that are gathered in Jerusalem, and he's making a claim for the entire house of Israel, know with certainty that God has made him, that is Jesus of Nazareth, both Lord and Messiah, this Jesus whom you crucified. End of sermon. That's right. So what's your reaction going to be? We did what? Right? Um, and now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and to the other apostles, brothers, what should we do? Now this is a really interesting response. Well, you know, just pack it up. You're, you're hopeless. It's hopeless now. Um, no, he says repent, right? T- uh, turn back. Uh, go, go back to God. You're, you've gone the wrong way. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, so that your sins may be forgiven and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you, for your children, and for all who are far away, everyone whom the Lord God calls to himself. I would want to give that one pride of place. So th- that's the next thing we would do together. I'm going to uh, wrap it up here. and we'll, I'll, I'm going to pause us, let's say that. We'll go out and have a break, and I'll finish the baptism unit here, and then we'll go on to the Lord's Supper. Um, so there are some that we can have a discussion. Which ones do we want to give pride of place? Which ones do we as a community think are most important, seem to have, to seem to have m- most uh, central place uh, for our discussion? And then we can let the other passages inform those passages, passages that we want to uh, frame the discussion. So this is a way of relativizing. I know that's a problematic word, but you have to do it. You can't say that the passage in Colossians or in Ephesians that happens to mention baptism as part of another argument uh, needs to be evaluated uh, with the same weight that some of these central passages do. So that's the next move here when we talk about what does the Bible say about a subject like baptism is which, which passages, if there are enough, 
um, are, are we going to allow to frame the argument and which passages are we going to bring in to inform the already framed argument. Okay, so I'm, I'm going to break us, I'll wrap that up, and then we'll go on to um, the Lord's Supper when we're done. Maybe we'll take one last question. You guys are ready for a break. Good, you deserve it. Take a break, maybe uh, 20 till, is that all right? If we have a 17-minute break here, and then we'll get started at 20 to 11.